morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a busy day ahead of us, so let's get right to it, reacting to the debate that was last night. Rihanna, take it away. Well, Robbie, four of the five remaining GOP primary candidates got into it last night. They met on the News Nation debate stage to hash out their differences. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, and Vivek Ramaswamy tackled a number of issues from the economy to the border to Israel and to Ukraine, and also the elephant in the room, or not in the room, former President Donald Trump. However, the night's biggest moment came when personal animosities between Ramaswamy and Haley exploded over this challenge given to the former UN ambassador. So foreign policy experience is not the same as foreign policy wisdom. I want everybody at home to know that I was the first person to say we need a reasonable peace deal in Ukraine. Now a lot of the neocons are quietly coming along to that position with the exceptions of Nikki Haley and Joe Biden who still support this what I believe is pointless war in Ukraine. And I think those with foreign policy experience, one thing that Joe Biden and Nikki Haley have in common is that neither of them could even state for you three provinces in eastern Ukraine that they want to send our troops to actually fight for. Look at that. This is what I want people to understand. These people have, I mean, she has no idea what the hell the names of those provinces are, but she wants to send our sons and daughters and our troops and our military equipment to go fight it. So reject this myth that they've been selling you, that somebody had a cup of coffee stint at the UN and then makes eight million bucks after, has real foreign policy experience. It takes an outsider to see this through. Look at the blank expression. She doesn't know the names of the provinces that she wants to actually fight for. And there's a puppet masters right there. The donors, the donors right there that are playing like the puppet masters. Now that wasn't Vivek's only swing at Nikki Haley over the course of the night. We're talking about that trans issue. And Nikki Haley's campaign launch video sounded like a woke Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light ad talking about how she would kick in heels. At the first debate, she said that only a woman can get this job done. That's what she said. After the third debate, when I criticized Ronna McDaniel after five failed years of leadership of this party and criticized Nikki for her corrupt foreign dealings as a military contractor, she said that I have a woman problem. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. This is a woman who will send your kids to die so she can buy a bigger house. This is the problem. Using identity politics more effectively than Kamala Harris is a form of intellectual fraud. Those weren't even Ramaswamy's most controversial moments from the night. Here's what he also said that got liberal commentators very riled up. If you want somebody who's going to speak truth to power, then vote for somebody who's going to speak the truth to you. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? That the government lied to us for 20 years about Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11? That the great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform? that the 2020 election was indeed stolen by big tech, that the 2016 election, the one that Trump won for sure, was also one that was stolen from him by the national security establishment <laughs> okay. that actually Thank put you. up the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that they knew was false. Joining us to discuss is political reporter at Semaphore, Dave Weigel, and Washington editor at The Spectator and Rising Friday's co-host, Amber Duke. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
come to you first, Amber, uh, for identity politics reasons, to, to get your view on whether you think Ramaswamy is right as he characterizes uh, Nikki Haley as indulging or overindulging in a kind of gendered identity politics, talking about her heels and whether a woman has to be the one to do the job uh, in Washington. Yeah, I actually think he's right. And I've been saying this since Nikki Haley launched her campaign, that heels comment was so unbelievably cringy. And she's du she's doubled down on it right after the last debate when Vivek Ramaswamy went after her and Ron DeSantis saying that they were essentially Dick Cheney in heels. She popped off to Twitter and was talking about how those heels are her ammunition. She corrected him on stage and said, actually, they're not three inch, they're five inch heels as if that somehow, you know, negates the attack. I think it's bizarre in 2023 for any Republican candidate to be talking about woman as if it's a qualification. So, Dave, I want to come to you. Uh, clearly, Nikki Haley has had some movement in her direction uh, lately to be kind of the, the candidate, you know, as, as people in the Republican coalition who are looking for someone other than Trump. Not enough of them. Trump is still, you know, wildly ahead if you check polls. But there's been a settling on Nikki Haley um, lately. Obviously, the Koch network decided to um, back her, even though um, her foreign policy commitments are very um, opposite um, their their own kind of non-interventionist uh, efforts. But it seems like she's kind of this is this, her moment has arrived, and so she's taking on a lot of heat from Vivek. Obviously, she's been taking on heat from him from even before she was kind of um, up there. You know, based on the reporting you do and talking to folks, um, how is this shaping up with, with Haley and then also with, with DeSantis, who's, you know, I think has conceded recently that he thinks he has no chance of being the nominee unless something rather dramatic happens to Trump, which could frankly happen given the legal situation? Uh, right. And at Semaphore, we've been reporting on some people who've left the Coat Network over this Haley endorsement, uh, which is still still happening. I think there are people within the network who assumed is, uh, that this endorsement process they talked about in February wasn't actually going to lead to fruition. They don't support Haley's foreign policy. They don't like the idea of who she'd bring into the administration. Uh, but she, yes, you framed it correctly. She came to this debate after a month of donors going her way. I thought it was curious and maybe a long-term mistake and uh, in in how much she, she boasted about it. She said at one point in, a, in an exchange with DeSantis that he was just angry because those Wall Street donors that used to support him now support her. I haven't heard many candidates successfully brag about how many Wall Street donors they have. Uh, and, and Vivek is in a weakened position in this primary. Uh, beyond just what people think of on stage, his negative has been going up uh, with, with Republican voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. But he, I think, performed a good service for Trump there in drawing her out repeatedly on all those questions, all the things that might make a lot of sense here if you're in a room in the Hamptons or in New York talking to Jamie Dimon types who just kind of want things to reset the clock to 2009. Uh, he he tried to draw her out, I don't think successfully all the time, but tried to point out this is not this is not as much as, as it polls well or as pleased those guys, not a populist position that's in sync with the new Demo Republican coalition. I think it was a little bit little bit much to do in one debate, uh, but that was the theme when I heard whenever I heard Ramaswamy attacking in a substantive way. Dave, I take your point on that, uh, but this seems to be one of the issues with the kind of Republican version of populism to begin with. While there is populist rhetoric, there is very little in terms of commitments of saying, I'm not going to take corporate money, I'm going to disavow corporate PAC money. I think that um, Citizens United and laws that enable endless corporate uh, money to get involved in politics are bad. You don't hear those kinds of critiques. So I do wonder if someone in, no. in a field where the populism is so much in, based in rhetoric as opposed to actually foregoing those 
those kind of corporate dollars. If pointing out that, hey, I'm the one that's the more successful one here, you also did take that money and now you're just mad that you're not getting it anymore. You've made absolutely no commitments before they left you to actually disavow that money is a more compelling pitch than it would be in perhaps a left democratic context. I, I think it's it's more compelling and there's some substance there. I mean, it's a fact. Ron DeSantis cost corporations money, cost Florida some money with stances he took against corporate diversity ESG policies. That's just true. I think his problem in this primary has been just it's just not a, a top of mind issue for a lot of Republican voters, not one that separates him from Donald Trump. They're not worried that if Donald Trump is president, he's going to go easy on them, too, even though he did. As president, he gets away with a lot of things. Uh, yes, she is. I think this was as, as much as Shaley is still in a strong position. Uh, she was critiqued and, and all the vulnerabilities she has in that space here, which is she is generally more supportive of laissez-faire capitalism, bringing business to the state with tax incentives, boasting about bringing Boeing to the state. Uh, she's very anti-union, which hasn't really come up since the UAW strike, but is a factor uh, here. They, they tried to draw it out. It is, a, I think, a significant difference between Haley and the rest of the field that's left. You had Tim Scott for a while. You now really have her as the one representative of this sort of Bush-era Republicanism that says we we need uh, more more privatization, more but whatever Wall Street, I don't want to be too too pejorative, but whatever Wall Street wants is good for the country. Uh, you had DeSantis is the one who quoted Silent, Silent Cal Kuldich uh, there and said he was right. So, but he is he has and Ramaswamy have a different view of the power of government to shape bad behavior in capitalism than Haley does. She just simply doesn't. It was just a little bit frustrating that the debate dovetailed into so many other places because that was really an important difference between how she would govern and how Trump and the rest would. Uh, you know, Amber, uh, I thought it was interesting that this debate moderated um, by uh, Megyn Kelly was one of the people um, up on the stage, has a lot of uh, interest, you know, on her show. She talks a lot about uh, gender issues, um, the, the transgender debate. That came up in this, uh, in, in the debate last night. Um, you know, I think some of the issues that do, um, do in fact, pertain to that, that Republican primary voters care about and are interested in hearing more about, the, the uh, candidates got grilled on that. Given this is, you know, this is still the Republican primary, I thought it was good to have some of those conversations. Um, what did you make of the responses along those lines? Yeah, I, well, first of all, I would say that you're right. I think the questions were more diverse and more of interest to a Republican primary voter than any debate thus far. I mean, it's pretty absurd to put a bunch of Republican candidates on a stage and ask the question, I think it was a couple of debates ago, um, under the premise that trans kids will kill themselves if they don't get gender affirming care or whatever. Like just the premise is flawed for a Republican primary debate. So I thought the questions were a lot better, first of all. But the, the responses were interesting because you had Nikki Haley and DeSantis going after one another, where Nikki Haley had punted on a bathroom bill around the same time that North Carolina did, I believe, in 2017. And DeSantis grilled her on that, and she did not seem to have a good response to it. Um, Chris Christie actually jumped into the fray and tried to sort of thread this needle that I've seen some people on the left doing, actually, which is the idea that parental rights in terms of what DeSantis wants to do with the education system, making sure parents have knowledge about what their kids are learning in school and maybe some input into the idea of parental rights in regards to whether or not children should be able to undergo these sex change or gender affirming uh, treatments as the left calls them. Um, I've never heard that made by a conservative or a Republican thus far. And he got hammered for it, right? Because DeSantis is 
immediate obvious response was uh, there's no parental right to child abuse. Um, and it was just the nail in the coffin. I think um, that the issue uh, insofar as it matters um, on on the debate stage is that I think it's a disqualifying if you have the wrong answer in a primary. Some people would argue that, say, homeschooling your children or denying them a meningitis vaccine or a polio vaccine or the slate of childhood vaccines that have become, um, that have saved so many lives over the course of history is a kind of child abuse. Should the government intervene? Homeschooling is child abuse? I'm sorry? You said homeschooling is a form oh, of child I, abuse, I'm or saying, people would argue that? Well, you're very incredulous there, Amber, but many people th That's think That's insane. Exactly. It is insane, because Amber, outcomes me, for homeschool kids are well, actually, well, Amber, a, a, would you mind in terribly many cases, better than for public school kids. Why would respond? that be considered a form of abuse? Well, I, Amber, many people say that allowing your kid to transition Many people to say, okay. <laughs> I, I would appreciate it if you could respectfully have this conversation with me, Amber. And I don't think the snark is necessarily going to advance the conversation here. So as I was saying, it is obviously the case that many people in America, as evidenced by polls and the fact that this is a contentious, in, uh, contentious issue, feel very differently about issues about relating to whether their children should be allowed to transition. Is that an internal parental decision or not? Just like you think, obviously, it is not child abuse to withhold um, life-saving vaccines from your children or to keep them out of the school system or to perhaps not keep them up with the generally uh, publicly recommended educational standards of the school. Other people say, feel the same way about their um, child's sexual orientation and ability to transition. So this is the question. Americans are obviously divided about these issues. The fundamental question is, should the government pick sides and be interfering in what parents decide for their own children? Yeah, sorry, I apologize for the snark. I was genuinely incredulous that homeschooling would in any way be compared to gender reassignment surgery for young people. What about I mean, vaccination, I think the obvious though? difference here, sorry? What about uh, measles, mumps, or the rubella childhood vaccinations, for example? And we're seeing vaccination levels, you know, historically known, low now, I think because of the politics around uh, the COVID crisis. You know, should the government intervene and step in and force parents to vaccinate their kids and not just say, if you enroll them in public school, you have to vaccinate them, but point blank, period, this is the law that you have to vaccinate your kids. This I mean, the is the, really the kind of debates that people whether, are having. Whether if they're going to go to a public school. Right, that's you what I just I mean, said. Right. I, I don't think yeah, so I mean, I mean, the debate, it's, frankly, it's, isn't it's, really it's, over it's whether a case the government by case can basis, but, compel but, them abstractly. Yeah, but right now, we're in a, in a period of time where some people would say that even if my kid does not go to school, I shouldn't be allowed to let my kid transition in my own home. But the, the government should come in and get between me and my doctor and my decision to let my kid transition outside of a public school context. How is that not analogous? Yeah. I, well, well I, the, I, the analogy I that, that, that issue, DeSantis but... is making on the stage is the idea that you shouldn't give your kid what, what the left calls medical treatment, which doesn't actually treat them because it doesn't reduce the rate of suicidal ideation or anxiety and de or depression and instead has all kinds of lifelong consequences, such as potentially sterilizing a kid, he's likening that to actual child abuse, as in like beating your kid. He's not saying it's compared to, there's not like, to me, there's not a debate over it because the science doesn't back up the idea that what the left calls gender affirming treatment is doing anything to actually help these kids. Well, people say in the fact, same it only things. comes yeah. along with harm.
All right, let's say uh, that, wait, I just want to say this. People say the same thing about science with the vaccines, and that science is very clear about your, the childhood vaccines preventing you from dying of polio and the like, and that's why the government should intervene on the parents' behalf. But I'm not arguing against childhood vaccines. I mean, at least it would have to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Like, I don't think children should have to get the COVID vaccine because, again, the science doesn't back up that those actually are beneficial to kids. Yeah. Dave, I want to give you the last word here. Um, let's return to the kind of situation in the Republican primary. Um, does it make sense for them to stick it out? Be, you know, Trump is so far ahead, I think no one reasonably expects that any, any of these candidates, Haley, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, would beat him when it comes to actually voting. But his legal situation could be tenuous. Does it actually make sense strategically for them to stick it out in case you know, for whatever reason, he ends up not being on the ballot because of the legal issues. Yeah, that scenario you just sketched out is, is hard to game out because imagine the response of a, of a Republican voter who agrees with someone like Tucker Carlson and says that what is being done to Trump is, is uh, violating his rights, is, is, the, is, a, is the government using its powers to prosecute political enemies. Imagine then looking at a Republican Party and says, well, they're right, he's in jail, so we're going to have to pick another nominee. It's very tough to see the party surviving a situation like that. It's tough, as tough as if Hillary Clinton had, had been indicted in 2016 and the Democratic Party tried to jump its first female presidential nominee, even though they might have won the election. Uh, no, the strategy for everyone who's not Trump is to last as long as possible. Uh, for, for, it, for Haley in particular, it is do well in Iowa, win New Hampshire, get a showdown with him. But none of them are in a position to beat him right now after New Hampshire. If you look at the states, not, not, just, not just South Carolina, this gap, this gap you have between that, that primary uh, and the first South, Southern primary, uh, but the Super Tuesday map, uh, these are states where Trump is dominant, where he's 50 points everybody else, and where Republican voters have made this determination that they, they agree with his policies, they like him personally, they think that anything levied against him by the state, by federal prosecutors, by prosecutors in New York, all of that is a bogus attempt to get him off the ballot. That's something that you saw. Only Christie disagrees and says this is a real problem people should get, take seriously. And you see how much purchase he has in the primary. He gets booed on stage. His negatives in, in every state, including New Hampshire, are in the 60s Republican. So it is a, I think, going back to those rooms of donors in the Hamptons that like Nikki Haley and used to like Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis, it makes sense to them. It does not make sense to many Republican voters that they might dump, dump Donald Trump for what they view as politically motivated BS. Make it make sense, they say. All right, Dave Weigel, Amber, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, at the GOP debate last night, Nikki Haley was asked about the congressional hearings on campus anti-Semitism. She said, quote, it was disgusting what had happened, referring to the university president's failure to promise that they would fight anti-Semitism. She also threatened legal action. How do you think these schools and the rest of society should balance the imperative of free speech against the need to prevent radical activists from harassing and intimidating others? It was disgusting to see what happened. You know, if this had been the KKK that was doing protests on those campuses, every one of those college presidents would have been up in arms. This is just as bad. The idea that they would go and allow that kind of pro-Hamas protest or agree with the genocide of Jews and try and say that they needed context on that, there is no context to that. 
But when it comes to the debate over anti-Semitism on college campuses, Nikki Haley is wrong. The university presidents are also wrong, and the members of Congress who yelled at them, they're wrong too. What do I mean by all this? Well, let's explain. As we discussed on the show yesterday, earlier this week, the presidents of Harvard University, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and also the University of Pennsylvania appeared before the House of Representatives to answer questions about anti-Semitism on campus. These questions were very much of the when did you stop beating your wife variety. Representative Elise Stefanik repeatedly demanded that Harvard's Claudine Gay, MIT's Sally Kornbluth, and UPenn's Elizabeth McGill give yes or no responses to complicated questions about whether calls for genocide would violate university policies. The presidents consistently explained that their answers were context-dependent. It mattered whether the speech was directed at specific individuals, whether it was severe and pervasive, and whether it was accompanied by prohibited conduct. These answers outraged Stefanik and her legislative colleagues. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Representative Jim Banks was similarly furious that UPenn had invited anti-Semitic speakers to a pro-Palestinian rights literature festival. Now, McGill clarified she had issued a statement condemning some of those speakers' remarks. Banks immediately suggested that figures like Roger Waters and Mark Lamont Hill had no business speaking on campus at all. Then McGill said the university's free speech policies are guided by the U.S. Constitution, a remark that was ignored. The anti-Semitic tenor of pro-Palestinian activism on some campuses is indeed horrifying. National Students for Justice in Palestine did in fact celebrate the October 7th terrorist attacks. So did individual chapters of Black Lives Matter and the Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA, for instance, said that, quote, socialists support the Palestinian peoples and all people's right to resist and fight for their own liberation, and that this weekend's events are no different with reference to the terrorist attack on October 7th. So that is an endorsement of the slaughter of innocent civilians. It's disgusting, hateful display for which there is no excuse. But the First Amendment does not make exceptions for hateful speech. It does not prohibit apologies for terrorism. It does not forbid implicitly genocidal statements. A university that wishes to model its policies after the U.S. Constitution, an admirable course of action, should allow students and faculty members to make odious statements. The correct response to this speech is for others to criticize it. Now, if the speech in question is individually targeted, it may lose such protection. Scribbling hateful messages on Jewish students' dormitory rooms, for example, would constitute targeted harassment under the university's policies. Anti-Israel protests and demonstrations don't count. It's fair to criticize university administrators for too often abandoning these lofty free speech principles in recent years, however, because campus authorities have routinely failed to defend free speech when said speech is deemed hateful by some offended party. Hundreds of U.S. campuses erected bias reporting systems, which allowed students to report each other for saying unkind things, even inadvertently. Over the course of the 2010s, universities created safe spaces and enshrined trigger warnings, which do not work, by the way, for the explicit purpose of discouraging supposedly hateful speech. Yesterday, I was asked by my co-host to give specific examples showing university bureaucrats are hypocrites and do, in fact, censor hateful speech when it's aimed at groups other than Jews. I gave her a few, but here are a few more. 
So a white female student at the University of Virginia was accused by a black student activist of telling Black Lives Matter protesters that they would, quote, make good speed bumps. The accused was a student named Morgan Bettinger. She faced disciplinary charges for threatening other students, health and safety, and she was ultimately expelled in abeyance. Even though two separate investigations, one by students and one by the campus's civil rights office, concluded there was no evidence she'd actually made that offensive comment. At McAllister College in Minnesota, administrators took down an art display by an American-Iranian artist that concerned the subjugation of women in the Muslim world. Why? Because Muslim students said this form of expression was harmful to them. Elsewhere in Minnesota, at Hamlin University, the administration did not renew the contract of a professor who had dared to show an image of the Prophet Muhammad in his class. Here's one viewers might remember. Georgetown University subjected a legal scholar, Ilya Shapiro, to a humiliating investigation after he sent out an ill-advised tweet that appeared to suggest he thought Ketanji Brown-Jackson was not the most qualified choice for the open SCOTUS seat. I don't think what Shapiro said was hateful at all. It was clumsy, perhaps. Not hateful. But that's not the point, because remember, we're talking about whether university presidents are hypocrites when it comes to protecting hateful speech. Clearly, they are. Administrators retaliate against controversial speech even when it isn't actually hateful. They just describe it as such. As long as someone is offended, it happens all the time. We need more examples. Let's proceed. At Princeton, administrators forced the cancellation of an art exhibition of 19th-century Jewish-American artists because two of the featured artists had been Confederate soldiers. The works in question had nothing to do with the Confederacy. Even if they had, thought we didn't censor hateful speech on campus, speech that makes others feel uncomfortable and unsafe, we were assured by the most elite university presidents that such censorship would violate their policies and never occur. How interesting. Moving on, a University of North Texas professor wrote on a chalkboard that a list of popular microaggressions, i.e. racial slights, was garbage. He was fired. George Washington University decided to investigate students for putting up flyers that were critical of the Chinese government after the university's Chinese Cultural Society said the flyers would foster ethnic hatred. By the way, this is by no means a list of all campus censorship episodes ever that resulted from supposedly hateful speech at college campuses. It's actually just a list of such episodes from this year alone based solely on articles I've written or were written by my colleague at Reason Magazine, Emma Camp, who also covers these things. By no means have we tallied all of them. That's a snapshot of some interesting ones from the last 10 months. Prior to becoming the full-time host of the show, I used to cover these things more regularly. So you need more examples. Let's please search my story archive from about 2014 to 2020. Um, actually, you know what? I'll give you one more because uh, it's from 2021 that concerns one of the universities whose presidents appeared before Congress at the hearing. That would be MIT, which invited a geophysicist, Doreen Abbott, to deliver a guest lecture on climate change. Students revolted, not because his views on climate change were offensive to them, but because he had written an op-ed that criticized race-based affirmative action in higher education. In response, the university canceled that lecture, the explicit reason being that black students might find that opinion to be hateful. What about Harvard and Penn? Those are the other two officials we heard from the other day. Instead, going, going into specific examples, let me just give you a data point. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression ranks colleges and universities on how well they defend free speech. Their rankings contain 248 institutions. Penn comes in at 247th. Harvard comes in at 248th. That's second to last and dead last. So let's return to the present debate. Now, when elite university presidents claim that even hateful speech should enjoy protection on college campuses, they are absolutely correct. 
when they say that hateful speech does enjoy protection on campus, they're either misguided or they are lying to you. So if critics want to charge that university administrators are hypocrites for only sticking to principle when their scrutinized speech is anti-Jewish, they can do so. But of course, we should remember that pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel activism has been suppressed on campuses over and over again. Pressuring university presidents to come down harder on legal speech is not a very good idea. And anyone who has paid close attention to the happenings on college campuses for the last two decades, as I have, or should be more wary of empowering administrators to engage in censorship. Universities do not need any encouragement on that front, least of all from US Congress. Hypocrites should be denounced when they fail to protect speech, however odious, not when they stick to their First Amendment principles. And if we needed any evidence of that, Liz McGill, one of the, uh, one of the presidents, who was called before that congressional hearing the other day, um, appears to have caved. She released a video last night, yeah, I Glenn Greenwald referred to it as a hostage video. Yes, saying that she she hears you, she sees you, she will do everything to uh, to fight anti-Semitism on campus, which, you know, and I'm, I'm now I'm speaking to people ostensibly on the right here um, who have felt the brunt of censorship on these campuses in the past over and over again, it's based on the idea that harmful and hateful speech is a, is a psychic attack on you and thus must be suppressed. We will make, I mean, Harvard can't fall any lower, uh, Penn can't far, fall any lower, MIT could still fall lower, I guess. We will make these places um, less amenable to First Amendment protections if we pressure them to censor more speech. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's interesting that these conservatives seem to be obsessed with um these elite campuses, given that they say that they hate elitism so much, when you have these rampant abuses of free, free speech in a lot of these Southern universities. For example, I just interviewed uh, for my podcast today uh, uh, Abby Martin, who is an independent journalist who does a lot of work on Israel-Palestine for years. She was disinvited from, I believe it was the University of Georgia, um, uh, because she refused to sign one of those uh, anti-BDS pledges at the, the Georgia Southern University, sorry, because she refused to sign an anti-BDS pledge. And these are the kind of really systematized, not the schools making academic decision or, or internal um, decisions as a, as a corporation or however you want to describe it, as an academic institution, but government overreach that prevents a school or constrains a school in these ways of, from having the kind of speakers that the students there or the faculty there might want to have. And I think that's a microcosm of the issue here that's going on, that periodically people with an audit of power will weaponize some discourse on college campuses to advance a ideology or a government action that is so much more important than what kids are doing on campuses. And we're seeing this right now. I mean, you just characterized the speech at Harvard as um, anti-Jewish, which is very similar to what is going on in Congress right now, where they literally just passed a resolution to mandate that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So we're in a world where the government is saying that, and the, in the eyes of the government, by law, if you're critical of Israel, a free nation in the world that has good things and bad things about it that anybody should have the right to criticize, you are, in the eyes of our government, an anti-Semite. And I think that is a much more dangerous thing, given that that kind of rhetoric and that kind of framing is being used to distract us from having a conversation about the fact that there is a genocide ongoing in uh, Palestine where upwards of 15,000 people have been killed and upwards of 7,000 children have been killed with American bombs. And I do think that there's a clear strategic I mean, there's a clear strategic move going on here that says, look over here at this whining Harvard student at a podium 
who's been given that platform an opportunity by a, a conservative Congress member, while there's not a single person on the right or left side of the aisle who has the integrity to say, how about we allow the Palestinian student who was shot and is now paralyzed from the chest down for the rest of his life to have the pulpit in, let's say, the Senate, where the Democrats still have the majority, to speak to anti-Arab um, bias and to speak to the bigger issue, I think, which is that, again, tens uh, over you know, tens of thousands shortly, certainly over 15,000 people have been massacred by a state that receives more funding from the United States than any other country in the world. I mean, so you've, put, you've made this comparison. You did yesterday when we talked about this, too. I, the, the person, the people who were shot absolutely deserve justice. I believe they've arrested the perpetrators, I, I believe. I hope, they, I hope they go to prison for the rest of their life. They get as—so so that is—like, I support—that should be addressed. Those people deserve justice. I don't even consider that a speech—that's a—it's a—maybe it's a speech issue on some level. It's a, it's a crime issue. Absolutely should be dealt with. I mean, that, that person, that Harvard student—again, you can say he's mischaracterizing it or he's making it up, but he's saying that his—, his his, his lived experience his was not addressed. Was not addressed. He accused. Do, do you want me to re pull it up and read it again? I'm sure it'll be clipped as something that I'm personally saying. I mean, you're the one who brought it up. Yeah. So let's let's let me give me a second to go back and find it. That student specifically alleged that his professors, not just students, but his professors, said, and I quote, "You're a dirty little Jew. You deserve to die." He at no point identified which professor, which suggests to me, if you can't remember someone saying something as vile as that to you, that it likely did not happen. So here he is weaponizing actual anti-Semitic statements to whip up a frenzy around how the real problem is that liberals love anti-Semitism on campuses, at the same time that Congress is saying anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. We've seen repeatedly the phrase river to the sea being characterized as the vile anti-Semitism, even when Benjamin Netanyahu's own party statement says, from the river to the sea, Israel shall have domain. And you don't see a connection between the focus on uh, what's going on on college campuses with conservative leadership using the platform of the house that they control to allow this young man to come up here and make this unsubstantiated statement. And you, and you don't see there's that, that there's any issue in the fact that we have two parties who will get behind this kind of a statement and this kind of action, as we saw with the resolution earlier this week, the anti-Semitism. Anti I just read a monologue but, calling would, on conservatives right, but, not to push for finish, more censorship. Let me finish this. What, what I'm trying to get at is there is nobody in Congress, there is nobody in leadership of the United States of America who would ever give a platform to the shot Palestinian kid, despite the obvious truth. The truth of the matter is that when you look at what the harm that has been done to Arab Americans and Palestinians and the harm that has been done to Jewish Americans over this issue, we've got one dead six-year-old boy stabbed to death, and we have three Palestinian American college students I mean, we that were shot. There that, have been, okay. There, so there have been Jewish victims of crimes for hateful sure. reasons prior who, who are to the, this. Who are the people who have been shot or, or dead because of uh, anti um, because they've been targeted for their now Zionist we're, Now views. we're going to start tallying how many yes, we literally people of are various start ethnic groups just have like, died and why? Yes, it's just like we're tallying the fact that tragically on October 7th, uh, um, about 1,000 people were killed by Hamas. You can do that. And that 17,000 people have now been killed by Israel, because these numbers matter, and the scale of these harms matter. And when the media participates no. and pretending like the scale of the harm and the real fragile injustice we need to be fighting against is this grown man standing at the podium in a right-wing hearing saying, oh, my gosh, my professor 
who is unnamed, but I promise it happened, said, you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to the die. Were killed and that a... we shouldn't be spending as much or more media attention Brianna, on this. I've made my point. You, I don't have anything else to say. Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to do this. I tallying of who got killed. I know and you don't want to do are, it because it's very inconvenient for Zionists. No, because it's gross, and we should be we all victims of violence. Is this we're talking is in you, a U.S. Is context? Is this kid a victim be, of violence? The kid at the pillow. You brought the kid up. I'm not. I didn't invite the kid, the kid to speak, and okay, I didn't. So I'm asking you, Ravi. You the cons conservatives have been complaining that snowflake liberals have been talking about this and that is violence forever. That's literally what this kid is doing. He's comparing his unsupported statement that someone said this thing to him, which clearly obviously wasn't said. You're trying to delegitimize what he has to say by saying, oh, look at these Palestinians who are the victims of violence. Well, I, I can well, point to Jews who are the victims I, I, of violence. I'm delegitimizing. Where? In, the, in a synagogue attack uh, a couple years but ago? The tree of life. Now we have to go, oh, but that doesn't matter because this was for these reasons. That's disgusting. That's utterly disgusting. Stop. Stop doing it. I'm going to finish what I have to say. Okay. Now we're going to wrap. Go ahead. Congrats. Okay. The Tree of Life synagogue massacre was um, perpetrated by a right-wing Christian extremist. It had absolutely nothing to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict. The dispute here is not that anti-Semitism is real. Of course it is. The Tree of Life synagogue disaster, tragedy, exemplifies the real kind of anti-Semitism that we should be focused on. And most anti-Semitism in the United States of America, just like that one, that horrible event, was perpetrated by anti-Semitic, right-wing Christian extremists that's not true you don't know that that's the case that is the case Google the it. most anti-semitic yes what? The, the tree okay. of life synagogue yeah. crisis was literally the biggest um the largest yeah. killing this of Jews just in the, small, the, the like harassing of Jewish people in the streets of New York wait, is being done by MAGA extremists wait, wait a minute so now you're conflating the largest tragedy of Jewish death in the history of America to um, a bunch of uh, pro-Palestinian advocates pausing for a few minutes outside of a, a Zionist store who just fired a couple of their pro-Palestinian um, employees to protest I that? Was that. I was referring to that to the rise of uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes in New York. Was that actually pretty stunning well before October 7th? Wait a minute. Okay, so you're saying—you're agreeing with me, then, that, of course, there's anti-Semitism that exists. But to try to conflate that with what's going these pro-Palestinian protesters who are, who are again I'm are, not conflating anyone. So then why are you bringing up those protests? You brought it up. You brought all of this up. Wait. I said that Robbie, we should stop. you just brought up the protests that happened before October 7th. And you brought up the Because you want to tally everyone who's been I'm harmed and why. Yes, as a consequence of the discourse, rhetoric, and I'm sorry, bombs being dropped by Israel on Gaza since October 7th. We're talking about October 7th here. These hearings are happening not, not, regretfully, I don't remember these hearings happening over Tree of Life, but they are happening now because this Harvard student, oh sorry, this is a Penn student, alleges that he had a professor who is refusing to name say, you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to die. And so this is the question. Are we all being whipped up into a frenzy? Is the a goal here for the, the, the allegations about what's happening on a college campus to turn public opinion, which has been ratcheting wildly in favor of Palestinians because of the horrors that we're seeing on our screen every day, are we being asked to feel more compassion for this young man at an Ivy League university's claims than for the 7,000 children that have been slaughtered by Israeli bombs that are paid for by American tax dollars. My only point was to actually try to protect pro-Palestinian speech and pro 
Zionist speech and any other speech, regardless of whether people find it hateful, on college campuses, which university presidents are doing a bad job of, despite what, no matter what they said in that hearing. And I didn't think you would find that particularly controversial. I don't find that aspect of controversial. More rising right after this. Trump's dream team revealed, sources close to former President Donald Trump have reportedly revealed how the leading GOP candidate would build his cabinet and White House staff if he were re-elected president in 2024. Allegedly, former First Lady Melania Trump is eyeing former Fox News host Tucker Carlson for VP. Former Trump senior advisor Stephen Miller is in talks for attorney general. Tucker Carlson is pushing former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon to be chief of staff once again. And apparently Ohio Senator J.D. Vance is up for a big role, possibly as well, on the VP shortlist. Other considerations include former National Security Council official Cash Patel, Mike Davis, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and also South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem has been floated as a VP choice. According to the new Harris X slash The Messenger polling, in a matchup between Trump and Ron DeSantis, the former president received 75 percent of support and the Florida governor received 25 percent, putting him 50 points behind Trump. And Trump received 79% of support between former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who received 21%, falling behind the former president by 58 points. Hmm. So Tucker is perennially floated as a potential GOP candidate. He has said over and over and over again he has no interest in running for president. He would never do it. He's been definitive on this point. So this would be selecting him for VP. I don't know if he feels differently about that. Um, I don't. I have no reason to think he's interested in such a role, but uh, he's certainly popular and gets along well with Trump, um, except for that, that little uh, I hate him passionately. Yeah, except for that. Well, he was mad at him at the time. Okay. Well, if I, uh, if I subpoena your uh, text, am I going to hear you say that you hate very many pe people passionately? <laughs> and are those people people that you would choose to be your vice president if <laughs> such an opportunity emerged? Uh, probably. <laughs> I say a lot of things about a lot of people. Um, Look, I, I can see why it would benefit Donald Trump. I don't see as much how it benefits uh, Tucker Carlson. Yeah. There, certainly there's no money in the game. He doesn't need a platform. He doesn't need more influence. Um, and having to play second fiddle to someone who he has in recent memory hated passionately and who does get himself into situations and, and commit himself to positions yeah. that frankly Tucker Carlson is not going to want to commit himself to. When you work on a campaign, the principle is what matters. The principle's voice and opinions is what matters. You don't get to have your own opinions. And the, the idea- The principle, you mean the, the principal person, yes. not principles. N certainly not principles. Right. <laughs> um, but no, the, the, the leader of the team, right. the, per, the candidate yes. is what matters. Um, and the idea of an opinion journalist like Tucker Carlson throwing all of that away to play yeah. second fiddle to someone who just from his age alone is on the end of his political career, I, I, I don't see it. I also I want to ask you, this was reported as Melania Trump is really gunning for T Tucker as the VP. Do we have a strong sense that Donald Trump is in the habit of deferring to Melania Trump's opinion or weighing them especially um, heavily as he's making these kinds of decisions? I mean, I don't know. He put Jared Kushner in charge of his entire Middle East foreign policy and like a bunch of other because things. Because of Melania? He put Ivanka Trump. I know, I'm just, he puts family <laughs> members in charge of sure. important decisions. 
What do you, you you don't think he? No, I think that's that's neither here nor he there. Well, Melania nothing. decorates did the Christmas tree decorations, and I thought they looked fantastic. Yes, yeah, she's I, a I first lady with an impeccable sense of style. I, I can't I can't, can't say argue. a mean thing about her. I can't. I wouldn't argue with that either. Um, I'm interested in talking about the polls a little bit. Obviously, we discussed the debate somewhat in in a blog, but there's a lot more to say there. Mm -hmm. uh, historically, despite the news media being very interested and engaged with Vivek Ramaswamy's performances during these debates, he has only gone down in polls over the course of this this primary season. On the other hand, Nikki Haley, who only got begrudging praise in the beginning and seems to be having stronger and stronger uh, uh, support um, uh, approval after these debates going forward has been gaining in the polls. And obviously, the Koch brothers and a lot of other big donors seem to think that she's the one to beat uh, if there's anyone that's going to be a, have a chance to go up against uh, Donald Trump. So I do wonder what you make of what you predict, rather, is going to come out poll-wise of this particular debate performance. Well, you know why I suspect that is? The people who—a lot of the people who like Ramaswamy a lot— are already going to vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump is their top choice. Mm -hmm. I think if you did some kind of ranking, mm -hmm. it would not surprise me at all to see Ramaswamy with higher overall favorabilities or coming in a higher place than Nikki Haley. It's just like right now Haley, DeSantis, Christine Ramaswamy are ostensibly fighting for the people who aren't already indicating that they're going to support Trump. And so there, there aren't a lot more of those people who are for Ramaswamy. Now, Ram, Ramaswamy, I think, is saying a lot of things that are popular with the Republican primary base on, uh, on, on really on all issues. I think he's quietly captured. Now, his, his fan base skews younger. It's certainly more online. It is the case that you know, all of you know, X is not is not real life entirely. Um, there, there. You know, I'm not discounting more normie people or more traditional Republican voters at all. But, uh, but I think, I mean, I think, you know, if Trump magically disappeared, I bet Ramaswamy's numbers would go up substantially. I, I think there's a lot of crossover in their appeal. Clearly, I mean, in, in fact. Establishment people have conceded that and think the entire point of this Ramaswamy um, campaign is to have someone on stage, because Trump's not going to do it, trying to delegitimize those candidates, that that's explicitly the strategy. I mean, it would be also very interesting, since this is a conversation about VPs, given the reluctance to attack Trump head on, this does feel increasingly like a race for number two. If Donald Trump were to pick someone, maybe not Tucker Carlson, but someone not on that debate stage as his VP after all of this, I mean, what is the purpose? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> frankly, I think he is likely to pick someone for VP who is not on that debate stage currently. I mean, there's Why no way on that? earth he's going to pick Christie. Sure. Given the level of acrimony between them, I can't imagine him picking DeSantis. Sure, but— um, Nikki Haley, I, I don't think it, it likely, frankly. Why not? Um, I, I think they're too much of an ideological clash. I think on what they're specifically? foreign policy. Come now. What, what, what specifically? Do you think that Donald Trump has a plan to end the war, to cut funding to Ukraine? No, but his people don't like her, like, a lot. Right. Like, they really, like listen, listen to Tucker Carlson, inveigh against her constantly. Sure. But Tucker Carlson, as we just discussed, is unlikely to be on Donald Trump's staff. And Donald Trump, as much as Sure, but he, if Donald Trump's listening to these kind of people, the kinds of people he's considering for his cabinet, your J.D. Vance's, your Steve Bannon's, your Steve Miller's, um, all of these people think Nikki Haley is anathema. Right, but the he v could still do it. You're right. I just don't think it's very likely. is to assuage the concerns of the part of the public mm -hmm. that did not vote for you. Joe Biden wasn't chosen because he was ideologically similar to, to, to Barack Obama. He was chosen because if you were worried about there being this young black president, here's an old white guy that eulogized yeah. Strom Thurmond. And it's the same—Mike Pence. 
if, it, it's not uh, Trump's an evangelical, so let me get this form, uh, fellow no, no, for, evangelical. For sure. You get someone who covers what you're not covering. You're right, but there is a way to do that. There are other choices. I mean, Christy Nome is a choice for that. There are there are people for whom establishment Republicans could breathe a sigh of relief about that would not infuriate Trump's diehard people as much as Nikki Haley. I, you're you're under I understand it. You're underestimating the amount of dislike for Nikki Haley among MAGA people. It's intense. It's really intense. I'm just telling you, it is. All right. If, if I mean, you heard no. it from you heard it from uh, from from. Um, Amber Duke, our Friday's co-host, who came on on A Block, she, you know, she's more conservative than I am, in, in touch with um, that that part of the base. They really don't like Nikki, Nikki Haley. Right, and it's also true that most Americans aren't where she is. I, I got to say, yeah. I'm sorry, and we saw that with the red wave that didn't happen last year. Most people are not so right wing about gender issues, about abortion issues, about all of these culture issues. Most Americans would prefer, I think, that 30 minutes of the debate weren't occupied with Ron DeSantis saying children's genitals, children's genitals, well, you can over and over again. And the red wave that didn't happen was stalled in large part because of right wing extremism on the abortion issue. And Nikki Haley has threaded that, uh, that needle very well. And frankly, Donald Trump has been much less. Um, extremist on that issue than a lot of other Republicans in the race. Well, so there does seem to be to be an interesting marriage of I mean, she, she's, interest there. She's threading it well in the sense that, yes, if she was the general election candidate, I believe she would win. I believe she has by far the most likelihood of prevailing over Joe Biden, whoever the Democrat is. But what I'm saying is she's not doing a good enough job of threading the needle in terms of actually winning Republican primary support, which is what matters. Well, a last... blue state, a popular blue state Republican governor. I mean, Mitt Romney would win in like a 50-state landslide, but Republicans hate actual conservatives, despise him now. Well, look, the last VP um, Republican voters uh, created a guillotine and uh, expressed an intent to lynch him on January 6th. At the, uh, Mike Pence? Mike, Mike Pence. <laughs> I, no, I just didn't, I didn't know what you were talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's—and that was his actual pick. That was yeah. that was Donald Trump's pick. So, I guess Which I'm— Which is why I'm, he's never going to be the— Sure, but I'm a, I'm a little bit more open to the idea that the, it, that it could be a person who argued with Donald Trump, who wasn't looked at particularly warmly by Donald Trump or his followers, that could be in that slot. I'm just saying, I don't think it's—I wouldn't count it out so so. I mean, it could uh, be Tim Scott. For, Tim Scott doesn't, uh, doesn't give the same—there isn't the same level of dislike I as there is for Nikki Haley. I also don't see how he helps Donald Trump in the same way. As Nikki Haley? Yeah. I mean, he— we're talking about setting some Republicans at ease. Yeah, but it, he, he has no that. constituency. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Let us know what you think. Stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this. President Biden lashed out at reporters yesterday during a press conference after one journalist asked a question regarding Biden's connections with his son Hunter Biden's associates. Let's take a listen. President Biden on Ukraine and also China, uh, there is polling by the Associated Press that shows that almost 70 percent of Americans, including 40 percent of Democrats, believe that you acted either illegally or unethically in regards to your family's business interests. Can you explain to the Americans, uh, to Americans amid this impeachment inquiry, why you interacted with so many of your son and brother's foreign business associates? I'm not going to comment that I did not. And it's just a bunch of lies. You didn't interact with many of their associates? I did not. There's what? lies. There are what? 
The outburst follows revelations by House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, he claims show a direct financial connection between the president and Hunter's business entities. Republicans were quick to respond to Biden, reposting a CNN report claiming just that. Despite his denials, a CNN review of the laptop data, as well as other public material, shows that Joe Biden did interact with some of his son's associates while serving as vice president, though it's unclear exactly what was discussed. The investigation into Biden's connections with the son's business dealings come as Republicans recently launched an impeachment inquiry into the president. The GOP has twice now attempted to subpoena Hunter for a closed-door deposition, both of which he has seemingly refused, as friend of the show Phil Wegman posted on Twitter. Comer, alongside House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, threatened Hunter with contempt of Congress proceedings should he fail to appear. Democrats have attempted to paint Jordan and Comer's efforts as hypocritical in the face of repeated refusals by the former to heed subpoenas related to January 6th. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland tweeted, Hunter Biden will answer questions under oath in front of the world, but unless he testifies in secret so he can be misquoted, Representative James Comer will hold him in contempt. What a joke. Jim Jordan blew off his subpoena. Comer doesn't want the truth and can't handle it. I mean, it does seem to me that the testimony should be public at this point. I don't know what there is to shield. You know, you, you would normally do this thing behind closed doors if the person maybe doesn't have as much public notoriety and has some legitimate privacy interest. I'm not saying Hunter Biden has no privacy interest, but a, a lot of his <laughs> private stuff has been, you know, for all the world to see at this point. So I, I think to be fair to him uh, so that Republicans or, or Democrats or anyone else involved in that may meeting can't mischaracterize what he says. It should just be in public. Yeah. I mean, importantly here, Hunter is happy for it to be public. So yeah. to the extent that anyone has a privacy interest to protect or who has the ability to waive that, it's Hunter. Um, so it does seem very suspicious if for conservatives only want to talk to him in private. And it's hard to find any other rationale for why they would want to do so other than what these Democrats here are saying, which is that they want an opportunity to mischaracterize what he said. Yeah, it looks—and um, it, it's so incongruous from, you know, what they're claiming about the January 6th footage. You know, just release it. You know, let, let people be able to see it. So, you know, we don't trust the government's verdict of it. Well, look, that applies to Republican officials and Democratic officials. Don't do things in secrecy behind closed doors. Let the people know and decide for themselves. Ultimately, we'd rather these be political questions. If we decide Hunter Biden—or Joe Biden's judgment is compromised or his financial situation is suspect, um, that— the voters ought to know about that. And they, I mean, obviously, if he broke some law, he could be prosecuted just like Donald Trump's being prosecuted in four different jurisdictions. But ultimately, these should be best left to the people, these decisions. So they need to know about it. Yeah, I will say that there is something here that is a clear indictment of Joe Biden's ability to lead, which is that the thing that he's getting caught up on here isn't any um, smoking gun that connects him to a pay-for-play scheme with respect to his son's business dealings, but simply that he went too far the way he sometimes does, and he's an exaggerator, a fabulist, who said, well, I have no contact with my son's business um, dealings, that I've never talked to any of my son's business people on the phone, and I've never done... So he had made this maximalist defense of himself that was easy to prove wrong. And so now Republicans are saying, well, you lied about this aspect of it. You were on a call. Was it a material call? No. Do you have a material connection? No. But if something's there, then maybe there's something more there. And, you know, I'm frankly am very skeptical that there is something more there. But Joe Biden got himself into this mess because he can't stick to the facts. He has lied about his, these kind of personal things. He's lied about things with much more um, national, global relevance. 
like the 40 beheaded baby story, even though, as we now know from reporting last week, his own staff members advised him not to include that in his speech. And he is doing so in a way that is getting, uh, it has significant geopolitical consequences. We also saw the clip of um, Anthony Blinken kind of reacting when at the end of the Chinese diplomatic vi visit, he called she a dictator. I mean, those no. are the kinds of That's not a lie, issues. but it's a faux pas. Sure, it's a faux pas, but <laughs> it's, it's he's— truth, he's, but— um, he is imprecise. He is not conscious of the implications of what he is saying. He seems to lack the ability to be forward-thinking and strategic in the words that he uses. And I think that is the bigger indictment here than anything the republicans are going to find on paper uh, as, as it pertains to this alleged his entire relationship. His, his presidential aspirations began with him plagiarizing a speech from yeah. a British um, political figure and and misleading the public about it. He's that that was that most people's first um, knowledge of the name Joe Biden, uh, unless you lived in his state, comes from that. So it's not surprising at all. Um, I, it's funny at the time where we're like taking unprecedented ex, uh, steps to expel a member of Congress, George Santos, for very colorful, fraudulent, um, for lies that he's admitted to. Um, but of course, we'd have to expel a lot more than just George Santos for, you know, those kind of serial fabrications. They include um, Joe Biden himself. I, I think it's also important to remember how, you know, not everyone in the media, but certain media outlets ran a lot of cover for Joe Biden mm -hmm. on the Hunter Biden issue. Of course, you know, the laptop story was uh, was deemed um, not credible, essentially by it's a national security uh, experts who gave a kind of cautious statement. You know, they left themselves an, an out saying that this looked like Russian disinformation. Politico totally lost that distinction when they, when they published the letter from these national security experts. Politico ran with it that, no, this was all illegitimate. Um, the Washington Post, Glenn Kessler, your favorite. He did some fact check of claims about Hunter Biden that's now had to be corrected. Like his fact check has been fact checked even in the article for the Washington Post a bunch of times where it says, well, actually, that person was at that dinner. Well, actually, this did happen this way. Actually, it did happen this way. And um, that's why people wonder if there's more to it. But Republicans have to put up or shut up. Yeah. And are there going to be diminishing returns? Have they stepped in it? Have they overreached if they're now in a position where Democrats have a slam dunk argument? You want a closed door meeting so that you can misrepresent the president's son. Um, I don't know that I wouldn't want to be in that position. They're, they were better off with the ambiguity, with the insinuations, with the implications. And the closer they get, it, it again feels like one of these what happens when the dog catches the tire scenarios. Hmm. All right, more rising right after this. DNC may not be willing to run a debate for the Democratic nomination, so the Young Turks decided they would host exactly that. Biden opponents Marion Williamson, Cenk Uger, and Dean Phillips appeared together in a live stream debate last night to discuss their views on the issues, the Republican debate, and how they saw the DNC as afraid of letting them debate Biden. Here's Williamson saying just that. First of all, it's exactly what Jenks said. It's that the president doesn't feel he needs to say anything because he knows that he has a machine that's taking care of business for him. And that's a problem. And that is the DNC and how the whole party operates in state after state after state, making sure we're not on the ballots, making sure that we're not debating the president, etc. And everything that Jenks said was true. We need to be out there talking about our counter narrative to the Republicans. We need to talk about what the Democrats stand for in 2024. 
before. What does Biden say other than finish the job? And here's a bit of Phillips responding to Nikki Haley, criticizing Ron DeSantis' parental rights and education bill, known more broadly as Don't Say Gay. One of the first statements I heard from Nikki Haley is accusing Ron DeSantis of his Don't Say Gay bill of not going far enough. Mm -hmm. That's Nikki Haley saying this. You guys, I, I got to tell you, I just don't get it. I wish I did. I don't understand the lack of compassion, uh, the lack of love, the lack of understanding, the lack of basic human decency. And the fact you have candidates on the GOP right now who are fighting harder and harder to be more mean-spirited than the other. I just don't get it. And finally, here's Jenk Uger on Donald Trump and abortion. Donald Trump's a guy who uh, cost us Roe v. Wade. So the idea that he'd be a moderate on abortion is absurd. And he's only doing that because he's a slimy con man. Uh, after he uh, destroys women's rights to choose, now he's gonna pretend that he's a moderate on the issue. but. The problem with Democrats a lot of times, like Joe Biden, is that they never fight back. So and Joe Biden should be out there pummeling Donald Trump on costing women the right to choose. But I haven't heard one word, I haven't heard one word in that regard. Oh, He starts every speech with my Republican friends. Sorry, but I don't have Republican friends. So it's not to say that we're not gonna deliver for Republican voters, we are. When we raise wages, their wages are gonna go up. When we lower truck prices, their truck prices are gonna go down. But when you talk about Republican politicians, sorry, I'm not with these guys. Hmm. Before Jank started talking, I was gonna say that the tone is just so different from the Republican debate. I do think there's something to just that being characterized by a lot of negativity, whether you think it's good or healthy or not, it was definitely very combative and negative, the Republican debate versus what you're seeing on this side of the aisle. Um, I think it was a really good idea for them to do it. I think the programming choice to do it the same night of the Republican debate was a tough one. I planned to watch it, but I confess even I didn't have the bandwidth to watch both last night. Um, and I also, I mean, you're, you're hurt by the raw optics of it. You have yeah. all of the money of the Republican Party to put on a glossy, glamorous debate with famous um, questioners and hosts and all of that. And, and Cenk Uygur with Young Turks being probably the most establishment, I just mean in terms of funding and, and structure, uh, outlet on the left. I'm glad that they put this on and facilitated it, but it's not in person. It doesn't have the same kind of yeah, energy. Why couldn't why can they get them in the same room? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, lots of times it's money issues on the left, but hmm. given the priorities, I mean, Dean Phillips is a multimillionaire who's largely self-funding his own campaign. And he's a Congress member, so he's here sometimes in D.C. Marianne is here. I don't know. That, I don't think that Jenk is here. All I right. think that the studios are in New York or California, maybe. But he's doing a book tour. He could, sure, sure. I, I completely agree with you. Um, but another point, uh, another interesting aspect of this is, you know, whether or not the priorities for Republican uh, voters were being addressed in the Republican debate. When you look at the how much um, inflation in the economy is dominating headlines right now, did you hear anything prospective about how to deal with inflation or to wage, uh, raise wages or anything like that at the Republican debate? Um, certainly not raising wages, no. Uh, the, I mean, the Republican... Uh, idea is to lessen government spending and that that will bring down inflation. Sure. So you didn't hear anybody address uh, kitchen table pocketbook issues for Americans at the Republican debate. And I do think that Miriam makes a really good point, which is that in the absence of a democratic primary process, in the absence of a democratic debate, you don't hear what the 
competing plans are that Democrats have on offer to what Republicans are saying. So they get to operate in a kind of a void, where I think the only, I think the only reference to health care at the Republican debate last night was Ron DeSantis saying something about how we have a sick care system and not a health care system. Well, Marianne has used that exact same line, but her plan to address it is to have a single-payer Medicare for all system, which 49 percent of Republicans support and 88 percent of Democrats support. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis, I think, was appropriately kind of deemed by one of the um, hosts last night for having, I think, the, the second lowest health care coverage state in the entire union. Um, and those are the contrasts that aren't made clear when you don't actually have a competitive Democratic primary where Democratic candidates are being encouraged to put forward their alternative view to what could make America a better place. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they did at one point get—by then I had started um, <laughs> writing the, ra <laughs> the radar I did today, so I had tuned out the last part of the debate. I think they did get into their plans of— Little bit, but I can't recall what they said about what their health care. More would important be, is uh, whether or not uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was uh, effective in holding up a piece of paper well, that said like Nikki Haley equals. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, you you know you can call it theatrics, but there, I mean, there, foreign policy is a big issue, and that is part of what he was going after her on. And there, there, DeSantis, Christie, Nikki Haley, and Vivek do have, there are differences between them on these important foreign policy what issues. The, what are the differences? Are they more, because look, let's talk about that a okay. little. Because the, one of the big moments was Vivek saying, oh, you can't name three provinces in eastern Ukraine. Now, I think that's a little bit of a trap, because everybody can name the, the two Donbass provinces. That's yeah. what everybody talks about constantly. I think three is, let me Google a third, yeah. and then I got a gotcha for everyone else in stage. But is that substantive policy analysis? Now, I, I agree that we shouldn't send troops to Ukraine. I'm not entirely confident that Vivek has really firm a firmly well, articulated vision of what he would not do from a foreign policy perspective, given how he spoke to us when he was on the show the last time, seeming not to be willing to commit to actually cutting funding to a place like Israel. Um, but I, I do worry that substantive policy debates are easier to turn into yeah, the, theatrics about who can name how many provinces in Ukraine, when, again, there isn't an alternative argument being made for ha the, the, the political party that represents half the country. You, you can dislike or disagree with, you know, his, the stance he's taken on Israel or whatever else. I, I think on Ukraine he's been pretty clear and pretty consistent in saying he doesn't think it's a major U.S. foreign policy concern, that we shouldn't have sent the money and we should stop sending the money, um, that he is supportive of finding a peace deal. And, and what he says on that issue is very different from Nikki Haley and then and Chris Christie. And then Ron DeSantis has kind of straddled the line. I think he's the one where he's saying the things about Ukraine that he knows the base wants to hear. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure the commitment is so is, is actually ideological for him. But look, look what it's happened real. when we it's pressed when, him on Israel. Like he said, uh, when, I, when asked, he said he would we, America has to respect its promises. We have to commit. We have to respect our commitments mm -hmm. to Israel, and that's why I wouldn't change our funding structure. Yeah, I, I think he's... How is that any different from what he might say to Ukraine? Okay, I, as a non-president, I don't think we should be funding Ukraine. But when he become, if he were to become president, does did we have to respect our commitments to the hundred billion dollars that they are unable to get through right now? Uh, but the hundred billion dollar commitment that they're trying to push through to Ukraine. I mean, I. I we didn't have an opportunity to push him on that, and most journalists don't. 
Um, but you know, that's my only that's my only concern about Vivek. Okay, I, I agree with you that he's said a lot of different things, some of them contradictory about uh, about Israel and about other issues. I, I think he's been very consistent on Ukraine, more so than other, but I, I don't trust, frankly, any political figure to implement the non-interventionist foreign policy I want if elected, because Donald Trump and Joe Biden both talked about having a, a less interventionist foreign policy and then failed in multiple ways. There's something about the office or the power of the bureaucracy or what some people call the deep state to still get, you know, the bipartisan consensus through. So, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not here, like, preaching the gospel yeah. of Vivek to Look, save I us agree. all or something. I agree. This Most of them are bad. All of them. I agree with that, except for I would say I probably would trust Cornell West to have a non-interventionist foreign policy. Okay. He's, he's the well, only one. Let's see if he got the <laughs> if he got the power, what would happen? I don't know. Uh, why wasn't he there? Oh, because this he's, is inter internal to the Democratic yeah. Party. Yeah, I, you know, I think it would be interesting to see Jill all Stein. the... Jill Stein. Jill Stein as well. Don't want to leave her sure, out. Sure. Uh, more rising right after this. This new story may be of interest to quite a few of you. The federal government has apparently paid media outlets to promote the COVID-19 vaccine, according to new reporting, from co-author of the Illusion of Consensus substack, Rav Aurora. Rav writes that independent journalists alerted him to a FOIA request filed by the media company The Blaze, which found a number of major media outlets, such as The Washington Post, The LA Times, NBC, CNN, Fox News, and others, paid to promote the COVID-19 vaccine. Also, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 public education campaign states that they employed, quote, both paid advertising and media interviews, presentations, radio, TV tours, and other public events to educate people about the importance of vaccination. Joining us now to discuss is co-author of The Illusion of Consensus Substack, Rav Aurora. Thank you for joining us, Rav. Hey, guys. Great to be here. So help us understand the scope of the vaccine, COVID vaccine promoting going on in the mainstream media. Obviously, we know that mainstream media figures were very encouraging of the COVID vaccine. But is it really, is it just advertisement? Because, I mean, frankly, you know, people, including the government and, and also private interests, you know, advertise with The Hill, our parent companies, and it doesn't, doesn't influence what we say about anything. It's just, you know, the revenue model for how things work. Uh, did this go beyond that? As far as we can tell, no. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that it would that it has gone further than that. Um, but, I, but I think this raises some serious questions about how journalism functions. And just to back off for a second, so this was a FOIA report, um, a FOIA request filed by The Blaze, and this was published last year. And it was uh, remarkable to see that it didn't get much media coverage, and and maybe understandably so because the report included. Uh, the fact that many media outlets like the Washington Post, LA Times, New York Post, Fox News, CNN, they all had received um, funding from the federal government to promote the COVID vaccine. Um, I, I think it's it's not necessarily as, as explicit or if people want to go down conspiracy theories and, and maybe think about, well, if they're paid, does that mean that they're directly told what to say. I, I, I don't think it's, it's anything of that sort, but I do find it um, a little strange and disturbing that many of these advertisements, right? If you go on the HHS uh, website and they have this COVID-19 vaccine uh, promotion campaign, several of their advertisements, just a quick cursory glance of these 10 second, 30 second ads reveal that many of them contained 
just complete falsehoods, like advertisements about if you're if you have kids that are five years old, getting COVID is unsafe, whereas the vaccine is clearly safe. There's no evidence to suggest that is a, a plain, indisputable fact, especially given concerns around myocarditis and the extremely low infection fatality rate in kids. And the, the newest uh, government uh, promoted ads are about the updated booster shot, saying that if you take the updated booster, it'll prevent hospitalization, it'll prevent long COVID when the only data, the, the only data that we have up until this point is a is for Pfizer trials in mice and in Moderna, a 50 person trial with a mysterious unexplained 2% serious adverse event rate, which is very high, by the way, but it's, it's a very small sample. Um, so it's not exactly clear. There's no clear randomized controlled evidence about how effective and safe the updated booster is. We would need a, a larger powered trial for a longer amount of time to see how effective it is. But this is the kind of propaganda, in my view, that's being promoted by the government. And it's it's strange to me why media outlets would uh, take funding to promote these things when I, what I would have liked to have seen during the pandemic was government or was journalists really critically taking a look at these government agendas and seeing if these claims about safety and efficacy for these vaccines were really holding up. And, and I think journalists left and right completely uh, failed to do that. And and I and I wonder what. what what role does that funding play? Is you know, is a, is it possible as a journalist at a leading outlet to do a, uh, a very critical expose looking at these claims of safety and efficacy? While if you flip the page, there's an ad about how amazing the safety and efficacy is. I don't know, but these are serious concerns um, that I that I think uh, we should talk about, and that I think um, are. You know they're, they're they're widespread and many people have kind of experienced this. Like my colleague uh, Jay Bhattacharya, he's done various news shows. Um, he's appeared on various programs, um, and I, I think he, he he's, he's appeared on Rising as well. Um, but there's other TV programs that he's been on where he's he's told me that before the show, they're, they you know, they they make sure like okay, you're gonna like you're not gonna say anything bad about the vaccine, right? You're not gonna like. Uh, you know, promote any anti-vax agenda. And he's not an anti-vaxxer, neither am I, but th there is this kind of influence and this narrative um, that the media has pushed that I think has been very irresponsible when it, when it has come to the vaccine mandates and particularly the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccines. Rav, I take your point about the influence of advertising on corporate media. I do think frequently there is, in fact, an effect of advertising on corporate media. You see on mainstream news shows that they frequently bring on people from the military-industrial complex without revealing that they are lobbyists for Raytheon or what have you. Uh, and so many of their uh, hosts have political backgrounds that are not disclosed, uh, and all of those kinds of things definitely have an impact on the news. And you see that in the tenor of their coverage as we are in the middle of this siege on Gaza. But I also am curious about this specific report and to what extent is it a departure from a sort of a norm, whether or not we like it. The government spends on average about a billion dollars on advertising a year. About half of that is recruitment ads, you, the be all, you can be army ads, I think that we're all used to seeing, um, in addition to promoting various public health interest and the census, the census, for example, and reminding people to fill out their census forms and, and letting them know what's going on there. So what, what uh, is what we're talking about akin to that sort of spending, which 
as I understand it, has to be disclosed. This is a ad paid for by the U.S. government, U.S. Defense Department, whatever it is. Or are we saying there's something more insidious where funding for the, the journal itself or for the outlet itself is being tied to taking a certain view on a COVID vaccine? Mm. I, I wish I would know. I, I wish I could give you an answer to that. Um, the, the report by the Blaze didn't include more information, and that's presumably because they didn't get that information. Um, I'd love to find out more, and I'm going to try and do some digging into this and see uh, what I can find and, and how much was actually paid, uh, and then which what's the comprehensive list of media outlets. The, the Blaze provided a sample of them, but there were hundreds of them. I'd be curious which ones and what the ideological um, spectrum of those outlets is. And I and I would and I would like to know how um, these deals were made and if there were any strings attached. Um, I mean, it, it certainly raises the question. As I was saying, um, when you looked at the media coverage during the pandemic and particularly after rollout of uh, vaccines and the vaccine mandates, there were a number of pieces that I I could just go right now and search up something like vaccine myocarditis, which is a topic that I was very interested in as a young. Uh, male, as, as, a, as a young person uh, in particular, who was very open-minded and interested in finding what the right data was. And when I interviewed scientists like Jay Bhattacharya, cardiologists like Anish Koka and Tracy Beth Hogue, who had done fantastic, uh, compelling studies showing the risks of vaccine myocarditis, when I looked at what they were saying and when I looked at what was being covered in the media, it was it was always, this is safe and effective. This is a small transient issue. It, it goes away. It's temporary. Getting COVID is more dangerous than getting myocarditis from the vaccine. The, the, this was kind of the narrative pushed by CNN, uh, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, etc. I remember one case in particular um, when, when Joe Rogan sat on his podcast in May of 2021 um, that when it comes to healthy 21-year-olds, I don't think they need the vaccine. And that perspective at that time was derided everywhere on, in mainstream media as this is being this example of extreme, crazy conspiracy theory with no basis. It's going to get young 21-year-olds killed. It's going to put them in harm's way. And that perspective at that time, and especially now, has been totally vindicated. There was no clear understanding of safety and efficacy of the vaccine for 21-year-olds with an infection fatality rate of something like 0.002%. Um, and and that, that's including um, mostly severely ill and 21-year-olds uh, with, with severe comorbidities. But for healthy people, the, the risk was far, far lower. And I, I remember reading this coverage at the time as an independent, open-minded person, reading the New York Times, reading CNN, and I just saw falsehood after falsehood. And when I spoke to some of the, the compelling experts in this area, they were telling a very, very different narrative. And that to me was completely discrediting of the media. What, how much of that is influenced by direct funding from the government? How much of that's influenced by, um, you know, editors at publications? I, I, I think yeah. I've been on your before to talk a bit about this, but I've, I've, I've written on my Substack yeah. before about how I was pitching many, many stories to a number of outlets on myocarditis, even just on vaccine mandates and just so, about the, the bioethics of that while interviewing individuals yeah. like Jay Bhattacharya in my articles. And the response I got overwhelmingly was, we're a pro-vaccine outlet. We are encouraging vaccination. We're not going to 
publish these articles, even if they're right, they may promote anti-vax hysteria. So we're not going to go there. This was not just one person, not just one place. This was the overwhelming response that I got, which to me was like, whoa, I, I thought I got into this, you know, at a young age to spread the truth and to present refreshing, nuanced perspectives. But in this case, that was just, no, you just couldn't, couldn't go there. So uh, let me... Um give you a chance to respond to something, and then maybe you can tell us where we can find your work, and then we got to go. But um, so my understanding is that the risk of myocarditis from COVID is higher than the risk of it from the vaccine. But of course, the vaccine doesn't, doesn't durable, you know, for, doesn't have any long-lasting prevention of, from you getting COVID. So it's not, so you, you could get COVID and face that myocarditis risk. And, or you could take the vaccine and face whatever the myocarditis risk is, and, and then also COVID. It's not like we're, it's weird to put one against the other, but that there is fundamentally a higher risk of myocarditis from COVID. Maybe you can res respond to but, that. And also that the, the vaccine myocarditis risk is concentrated, studies show, for males between 12 right. to 39. And in the specific example that you offered, you were talking about a government-funded ad uh, about five-year-olds, saying that five-year-olds were safe safer taking the vaccine than not, um, which doesn't necessarily implicate the myocarditis risk from the vaccine. But please do respond. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that I'm, I'm just amazed at why this is not talked about in mainstream media. And people can go check out Dr. Anish Koka on my Substack. I did a whole article about him. He's a great cardiologist in Philadelphia, very pro-vaccine, uh, vaccinated and boosted. His kids were vaccinated. And he administered the COVID vaccine at his clinic to... Um, I don't know how many people, at least dozens of people at his cardiology clinic. And he, in my interview um, with him, said how he regretted doing that in light of the evidence. He at the time trusted the CDC and the FDA and the, the mainstream narrative on this. But it became clear to him over the span of a few months that that narrative was wrong, particularly, Robbie, to, to answer your question, um, and this is informed by cardiologists like him, the, when it comes to COVID myocarditis, that's very different from vaccine myocarditis. And COVID myocarditis, and Anish Koka says it's a, it's a bit of a confusing term because those two things are very, very different. COVID, what they call myocarditis, is an individual in the hospital who has gotten severely ill from COVID and their lungs are collapsing, they, they have pneumonia, they have a bunch of different conditions, and that includes heart inflammation. And that gets grouped in as COVID myocarditis. And the profile of that person or those people getting myocarditis from COVID is typically very old, severely ill people who are in the hospital, who are experiencing multiple severe symptoms from COVID. Um, whereas vaccine myocarditis is concentrated among younger, healthier people. So that comparison is uh, uh, very misleading and disingenuous and was done over and over in the media because the risk of COVID myocarditis is concentrated among 60 plus people who are severely obese and have multiple comorbidities. The risk of vaccine myocarditis is concentrated in healthy young uh, men and women uh, under the age of 30, particularly under the age of 24, who they had an infection fatality rate that was extremely low. And the vaccine myocarditis concern, um, they put it at one in 2000, one in 3000 potentially. But that's confusing. I'm not going to bore you with too many details here, but we're still waiting on results from the FTA on the risk of subclinical myocarditis, because there's been a couple of very small studies from Thailand and elsewhere showing a two to three percent rate of subclinical myocarditis in that it doesn't meet the clinical criteria of myocarditis. But these individuals had elevated troponin levels, 
had chest pains, had various issues uh, potentially, but it was subclinical. And we still don't know what the rate of that risk particularly is because the FDA has not released that study yet when it was due in, uh, I believe, December of last year. And then it was updated to, it would be published in like June of this year. It's still not published. So there's still so much that we don't know, but we have every reason to mm. believe that um, we were seriously misled and the coverage was very irresponsible on this specific topic. Rav Aurora, it's the illusion of consensus substack, I believe? Yes, yeah, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and I, we run uh, the illusion of consensus substack. Thank you so much for joining us on Rising. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks guys. the one progressive thing that Andrew Tate has ever done. He went ballistic during an interview with Piers Morgan over the war between Israel and Hamas, or better characterized as the siege of Gaza by Israel. Let's take a look. Let me ask you a question, because I want to understand no, your point of view. It's actually my you, interview with you. Yeah, but, but you tried to understand mine. I just want to understand your point of view. Mm -hmm. If I believed, or if Israel believed, that one of the people in your house was mm -hmm. a terrorist, and decided to destroy your entire house and kill your entire family, mm -hmm. would you sit and say, well, maybe there was a terrorist inside. I accept that. Or would you be enraged? Genuine question. I don't think you can take an individual person's response. Well, it's a bunch of individual as, people in Gaza. An, yeah, there are sure. people, individuals with right, thoughts and dreams come. and aspirations Fine. which are being annihilated. 15-year-old girls without legs because of cruise missiles. Let's come they to are that. individual people. They're not cattle people. Let's come to They're that. They're people. Right. Now, I did not expect that turn. It's, it's kind of similar to the argument that you heard Elon Musk made, of course, this was before his trip to Israel, that even if you think that the, um, that Israel is justified in having a response after October 7th, that if your goals are to end Hamas, you're just creating more Hamas with all of the bombs, precisely because of the reasons that Andrew Tate is articulating there, is that it's not, in most people's kind of moral framework, justified to have such an out-of-skew, um, uh, target to casualty ratio, target to civilian ratio, as what's been going on with Gaza, where we now have over 7,000 children killed, not even to mention all of the innocent men and women that are taking the tally up to about 15, 1,500. And it is worth noting now that even um, Israel is acknowledging that the, the Hamas death toll, as it's been framed by the President of the United States, is accurate. Those numbers are accurate. Yeah, look, I think I've made the exact same analogy as Andrew Tate, I'm a little embarrassed to be saying that, um, <laughs> before on the show, that, you know, just because, you know, I, I, if a group of carjackers or something, as God knows there's plenty of that in my neighborhood, came and were hiding out in my apartment building and the police response was to blow up my apartment building with me and all my neighbors in it, um, I wouldn't consider that fair. <laughs> and the survivors would probably be pretty radicalized against the government. So Israel you know, ought to take that into um, serious consideration. Um, you know, I read a piece by um, Eric Levitz in New York Magazine the other day um, that I, you know, made some sense to me. And he says very clearly, it's not that Hamas has legitimacy or that in an ideal world they would, they, they would not exist. They sh you know, ideally, they would be gone. But can that goal be accomplished without so much death? Can it be accomplished basically at an acceptable toll, at an acceptable cost? And he argued pretty persuasively it can't. So then, then it becomes, what else, what does Israel do? Of course, the state of Israel is not going to accept the condition that, well, they should just stop this effort and live alongside Hamas. Um, 
But I, you know, if you care about limiting civilian deaths, this seems very, and which I'm not saying Israel does, uh, you're, or, to, or to a sufficient degree, um, that seems pretty incompatible with the goal of getting rid of Hamas I mean, the at thing this is, point. It, people are saying that Israel does have a respect for life that is commensurate with kind of international standards, international law, and individual moral morals, even though we're kind of seeing evidence to the contrary. Um, one of the State, State Department spokesperson persons was asked recently about this question, you know, do you think Israel is targeting um, their targets sufficiently? Do you think the civilian death toll is in violation of international law? And the response that these spokespeople routinely give is that, yes, that, that Israel doesn't target civilians, that Israel isn't responsible, that there's no accountability, there's no reflection on whether or not we should take note of the fact that um, the death toll here and the child death toll here is more than the combined child death toll of, of all of the conflict zones in the United in the world this year to date in the last two months. I mean, clearly Israel isn't just acting in response to a terror event. They're yeah. doing more than every other actor in the world in a conflict zone combined. And so at a certain point, you can't say there, this is just what happens in war. War is war. This is par for the course. At a certain point, you have to acknowledge that what we're seeing here is disproportionate and wildly out of sync with what the norm is. Well, I mean, it's, it seems like it's outside the norm because, frankly, we don't see a lot of conventional war anymore. But I mean, we, we reduced entire cities in Germany and Japan to rubble. We killed thousands and thousands of people women and children, non-combatants, in the course of our campaign to eliminate or force the surrender of a hostile regime. I mean, that is what they're doing. The Hamas is a hostile regime. You keep, I mean, it is a siege of Gaza, but it's also a war between two organizations, Hamas and the state of Israel. Um, well, it, that's I mean, what's happening. And so, so they're pursuing I, I would, the aim of the surrender or elimination of the other organization. Is Palestine a state? Does Palestine get to have statehood? Does Palestine, it, it is a, does what, Palestine get to have region? an army? It's, is it allowed to have an army? I mean, they got to vote for the people in charge of them. Is Palestine allowed to have a standing army? They have combatants who attacked Israel. Does it, Palestine have a standing army? No. It doesn't, and it is not allowed to because it's not allowed statehood or any of the self-determination that a state would have. That's what Palestinians are fighting for. They're fighting for the same privileges. But they are fighting. You concede that. Of course. Why shouldn't they? Right. So it's a military conflict between— No. I, I, People—civil rights movement fought for their freedom. The South African <laughs> apartheid fought for our freedom. They're fighting with violence. I, I hate to break it to you, but the Revolutionary War, South African apartheid, the end of slavery, okay, all and, of that and the happened with yes, Iran. And the Revolutionary well. War, the response in the Revolutionary War was that the country we were revolting against sent ships full of people to kill us, to kill the people leading the revolution. So that's what's happening here. That's conventional warfare. It's conventional it's, warfare. It's, it's not conventional no, warfare. No, it is absolutely. It is targeted at a hostile regime. Right. So I, I, I totally Israel. get your point. Let me make my case okay. for why it's not conventional warfare. It's not conventional warfare because um, for the last uh, 17 years, the people of Gaza have been kept in an open air prison, liter a literally walled area that's about the size of Queens. 2.3 million people live there. That it's characterized as one of the most densely populated places on the earth. Israel controls the flow of electricity and the flow of water and the flow of food into and out of Gaza. It also controls the flow of people. People cannot leave Gaza without permission. Gaza is not allowed to have its own airport. People, the people of Gaza uh, are largely stateless and have trouble. The people of Israel 
many of whom evacuated after uh, October 7th. They had dual citizenship. Many of them are Americans who were able to come here or go to other parts of the world. They have access to airports and free egress and, and, and ingress. The people of Palestine do not have that. So to say that this is conventional warfare, where you have people that are pinned in and much in, in conditions that are much closer to a Warsaw ghetto camp, um, and then to drop more pounds of bombs on them in a few-week period than we dropped on Afghanistan in a year, and call that conventional warfare. Many people will consider that much more of a David and Goliath situation. We are taking a bound, unprepared, defenseless population and exterminating them. And now I think you're getting people like Andrew Tate, who, whatever his politics are, having empathy with the plight of Palestinians, because you're seeing footage like this. You're seeing reporting that Israel is asking people repeatedly to evacuate and evacuate and evacuate and then bombing the locations that they're evacuating to. Remember, initially they said, well, we're being humane because we told everybody to evacuate to the south. Evacuated people while they, I'm sorry, bombed people while they were on the evacu evacuation route that they were told they were safe. And then it uh, started to bomb hospitals and civilian centers in the south, despite saying that those were safe zones. And now, they're basically admitting they're dropping these flyers from the air saying, you got to get out of here or about to bomb. But international humanitarian organizations and everyone is observing that there's simply nowhere else to go. Again, imagine if 17,000 people were killed in an area the size of Queens and that's, that 80 percent of all homes had been destroyed in Queens, that there was a wall around Queens and the people there had no place to go. You, I agree with you to describe this as a kind of David and Goliath conflict, although that's probably a bad metaphor because David famously defeats Goliath, right? But a, a very lopsided conflict with Israel has vastly more power and resources to inflict punishment on the Palestinians than the Palestinians do to inflict on Israel. That speaks to the—how unwise this course of action was from Hamas to provoke into a broader confrontation the state of Israel. I don't condone what's happening. I don't enjoy watching it happen. I don't want it to happen. I wish it would stop. I wish they would agree to live in peace, and I wish the Palestinians would get all of the rights due to them. I do. I absolutely wish for that. Um, we're in a situation where that's not going to happen, and it's deeply frustrating to both of us. All right. We'll have a rising for you right after this. Gamers around the world rejoiced when the new trailer for the sixth installment of Grand Theft Auto dropped. However, not everyone was pleased. Andrew Tate and his brother Tristan Tate rocked the internet this week when they made his case against playing Grand Theft Auto 6, or at least against kids doing it. Let's hear what Tristan had to say. I remember when you used to play a little man in a red hat trying to rescue a princess and teaming up with your brother. Now, if rescuing purity from evil while teaming up for your brother isn't a good theme of a video game that I don't really know what is. I'm not a fan of anyone under the age of 18, 21 maybe, playing video games where the goal is to shoot police officers. I just don't think that's good for society. With all the amazing graphics and engines and whatever people put into these video games, I feel like you could create a better objective with the game. Now, the Tate brothers weren't the only ones to speak out about the new edition of GTA. 
Oh, commentator Jackson Hankel tweeted, why are the Zionists at Rockstar Games releasing this sexualized video game for children in America? Get hashtag ban GTA 6 trending right now. And of course, so every time one of these games comes out, there's various calls from various people to ban it. Sometimes it's actually coming from politicians. Um, I think a year ago there was some Chicago councilman who made some waves for pressing forward with a ban GTA um, bill of sorts. I thought it was interesting this time for the, those specific individuals calling for it. I mean, the Tate brothers, I don't know, that have so much of a leg to stand on being disdainful of, like, sexualized or graphic material in a video game, given um, what, what oh, they were accused of. Oh, because you mean that of. they're frequently on camera uh, explaining how genius they are to exploit women to make on-camera sexual content that they can profit off of? That, that is whole what, thing. I, what I had in mind. Um, yeah. Um, I, I feel like I, I got to say that um, Jackson Hinkle referring to the... Uh, company, the people who are in charge at Rockstar Games, as Zionist, unless they have actually articulated a view on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if he's just saying, oh, there's some Jewish names and so I'm going to tag them with that, that is a problem that is anti-Semitic. Yeah. Now, if they have demonstrated some support of um, Zionism, then all is fair in love and war. But it does seem to be weirdly shoehorned into this other argument that he's making. Yeah. I mean, this does feel like something that comes up every time these games are released, in part because, correct me if I'm wrong, they're not only very realistic, but they are pulled from life. So I've, I have seen people on um, Instagram doing, or Twitter doing side-by-side -side comparisons of um, videos of news reports of wild things happening mm. in Florida or, you know, car chases. You know, it's very much pulled from reality. And that combined with the fact that this is one of those games that doesn't have as clear a drive as Mario, where you're hopping laterally through a screen to save a, a princess. But uh, some of the fun, as I understand it, is t charting your own adventure, hitting hookers with your car, that sort of a thing. Yeah. I remember being the controversy in years past. Yeah, it's, uh, it's open world, so it takes place in a fictional Vice City, but it's basically Miami. Um, and it does, it does have a plot. I, I think the plot of this one is, uh, I think actually the protagonist is female and has just been released from prison and oh, trying to get her gang back together or something like that. Um, uh, so th there is a, there's a, actually a very kind of elaborate and well-scripted plot with very interesting characters, but you can, yes, go off the beaten path, steal people's cars, meet up with prostitutes and gambling and crime and all that sort of things. You can attack random people, you can attack the police. Um, and and there's, there's, there was this idea, I actually think this idea has almost been successfully beaten out of society, but uh, there was a, an a, assumption that participating in violence in video games would make you, um, would make you more violent or make teenagers violent or engage in violence. Um, that is a theory that has like no support in social psychology research whatsoever. Um, we don't accept it in you know, the, the reading violence in, in books or in textbooks makes people more violent, just makes them more informed. But there's this idea that because it's interactive and it's like you're in the mind of the, of the person, you would be able to like mess with your brain or something. Again, that's been basically totally debunked. Sure. I mean, I do think all that, all that stuff was overstated. But me personally, I wouldn't want my children or anybody that I love to use um, the idea of killing 
sex workers with my car as entertainment, especially very young, impressionable people. But the question is, should the government be raising your kids, or do you just make the right. decision not to buy them? I think it has a mature that, rating, auto. which is for, I don't know, yeah, over I, I mean, this 18, is this I think. Weird, and you're seeing Jack, Jackson Hinkle was once a left-leaning figure. I think he's charted his own path in this kind of mm -hmm. post-bipartisan, what I don't even really know what you want to call uh, how he identifies now. Um, but you are, it is interesting to see this kind of, pairing here, when historically it was that left-leaning people didn't want to buy into some of this culture war stuff, and also that right-leaning people used to not want the government to interfere in your life and your child-rearing, or at least they, they said that. I mean, they've always been part of the culture war interference pogrom, but this is just another yeah. example of how none of this really seems especially political. It's just vibes. If you don't want your kid to be playing this game, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> Don't buy it for them. Have you know, make decisions about whose house you want them to stay over and how you want them to play. But is this getting really ridiculous? It's a game that, as you say, is clearly marked for more mature audiences. If you don't like it, don't play it. Well, and importantly, the legal issue of can the government ban a game like this has been pretty decisively decided by the Supreme Court in 2011. There, the, uh, that was the state of California had tried to restrict sales of violent video games to minors, and it went to the Supreme Court. And in a decision authored by Antonin Scalia, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and joined by, I think, seven of the justices, seven of the nine, um, said that, no, the government could not restrict the sale of violent video games to children, just the way it couldn't restrict violent books or anything else, that this is, it's a First Amendment violation. This is artistic, this is freedom of speech. These game, modern games have story. I, I, you know, everyone can have their views on Scalia, but I've always appreciated him specifically for this decision as a big fan of video games myself. He, you know, very elderly um, justice at, at this point in his life, but very well understood the artistic value of video games and that they're narratively driven and that um, they've come a long way since just, you know, the plumber fighting the the dragon monster. In fact, those games have come a long way, too. Um, saying that, yes, this is First Amendment, you can't restrict these games. So people can keep you know, saying that I, I wish the government should do something about it, but they literally can't. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when the controversy in the old-time games was that Tails, the sidekick of Sonic the Hedgehog, was allegedly gay. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> heavens, heavens to Betsy. Not a gay two-tailed two squirrel. <laughs> uh, uh, um, you know, Birdo, an enemy of Mario from the second Mario game, mm -hmm. Birdo. Do you know the, the 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 dinosaur with the bow in its head that shoots eggs? Oh, yeah. Birdo is transgender and was always intended to be transgender. Oh my goodness. I know. What will they think of next? Yeah. Don't Cancel tell Ron DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow, Jessica and Amber will take the wheel, and uh, that will be on Fridays as usual. And Brianna and I will enjoy our weekend. <laughs> All right, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, of course, we're available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Have a good one.